Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 103. Today's guest name is Mike O'Neill, and he is a partner at Stone Arch Capital, which is a mid-market, Midwest private equity firm. And I wanted to have Mike on the show today because he and I were on a panel together where we were talking about growth and exit planning, and he was representing the private equity side. And during his presentation, he was able to describe in plain English with very good logic and math how the second bite of the apple works for the business owner. He describes how there's three levers that need to be pulled once the private equity firm comes in and buys the company and how those three levers that are pulled increase the value of the company significantly and allow that second bite of the apple, which is the equity that was rolled or kept in the company, could potentially be worth three times the original amount that was going to be paid out to the owner in that first valuation that was tied to the original purchase price. He also describes in very, very clear fashion what the risks are for the business owner from a personal standpoint, from the lack of control potentially, from the management structure, where you are in the timeline of retirement and your ambitions. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and the clarity that Mike brings to the entire private equity recapitalization and second bite of the apple story. So without further ado, here's my episode with Mike. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well, Ryan. I'm glad you're on the show, man. You and I were sitting on a panel together a few months ago, and I, uh, I've seen a lot of private equity guys giving um, presentations before, and you know, you've got some unique experience that I want you to share with the, the owners from different family exposures that your family businesses that you've got, and then you're also in the private equity space. So I, I was excited to have you on the show because of how you explained your world, and then the second bite of the apple, which I've talked about and had different stories on. But um, you know, for the listeners that aren't familiar with you or your company, maybe give us a little bit of background on how you got into private equity and then the company that you're working for. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Um, I'll give a really quick background myself, kind of uh, our firm and and kind of my interest in this, and then we'll we'll certainly cover a second bite of the apple and all all that stuff. Um, so real quick, I grew up in a small town, Dubuque, Iowa. It's about fifty thousand people. Um, I came up to Minneapolis uh, to go to school at St. Thomas. I began my career originally as an investment bank, uh, investment banker at a firm called Goldsmith Agio Helms. Uh, they're now Lazard Middle Market. Great experience working with entrepreneurs and business owners. Lazard's full of just super smart, wonderful people. Um, lots of close relationships still. Um, it was a great experience. My interest in private equity and how I got into the space um, came from a background with family business. So my, my grandparents were involved in a chain of shoe stores called Orange Shoes, you know, in, in to give kind of context on so like 2002, uh, they celebrated their 100th anniversary uh, founding wow. of, the, of the company in La Crosse. At its heyday, you know, it was about eight stores in Wisconsin and Iowa. And when I was working at an, at an investment bank, I remember actually explaining to my grandmother what I did, you know, and she just kind of looked bewildered, like, why didn't that exist when we were you know, going through our, our, our situation. 
And so ultimately, I joined Stone Arch in the summer of 2008 after working three years as kind of a sell-side investment banker. Really interesting place in that you know, it's a Midwestern values-based private equity firm. And we, we really view ourselves kind of almost as a you know, partnership uh, private investment firm. We're taking an investment anywhere between 51 and 80% alongside the management team and, and, and founders uh, or, or current shareholders and just really great people. I spent a brief hiatus away to go get my MBA at Cornell University, um, then came back to Stone Arch. And I've, I've done everything here. I've been you know, an analyst through a director. So everything from you know, reviewing industries that our firm thinks is interesting, you know, actually reviewing the individual investment opportunities, I'm negotiating the transactions. So that's you know, price terms, et cetera. Uh, and then working with the management team over a five to seven year kind of journey as we tackle problems and celebrate successes. It's, uh, it's, it's been a great experience. Our firm, you know, it's a really special place. Um, you know, we were involved in these transitional investments with owners, um, typically in the Midwest, uh, which we tell people is kind of Ohio to Colorado to Missouri. And our, really what we're good at and what separates us is that you know, we're, a lot of owners want to preserve legacy and culture. And that, and that for us is what we're trying to focus on is, is how do we preserve legacy and culture and help them get the business to the next level, you know, still preserving, you know, all those things that made it great, but, but living past, you know, them past the, the kind of, you know, key man risk, if you will, that, that maybe the business holds today, uh, where, you know, all things flow through them to a better place that's, um, you know, for all kind of stakeholders, both the employees who come to work every day, the families depend on those paychecks, the community, um, customers, vendors, that everybody has a better place. And in, in doing so, we, we we generate value for the equity holders. So, and, and I think that's awesome context. And then as we, I want to kind of peel into that because I, you know, having on sitting on the panel with you, I, I believe that you probably are doing those things and things. And I think, you know, and that you probably I'm curious if you agree or not, Mike, but like a lot of private equity firms say that, but it depends yeah. on where they get their money and what, like what's actually driving the motives of buying the company, you know, yep. is so like, we're, you know, whether it's you guys or other firms and how do, how do you, you know, where do you get your money and what is the goal of your firm? And, you know, how do you align that up with that? And then what should the listeners and entrepreneurs should be, what should they be asking or be concerned about as it relates to what you just said? Yeah, it's interesting. So the you know the private equity model, um, the traditional model, is uh, you know we our customers are our investors, and so you know for for our firm that's you know big institutions, you know they'll they'll generally remain nameless, but it'd be universities you'd expect to see and pension funds and endowments and things like that that are giving us giving us capital, and you know they're looking at the asset class in general and saying you know you've got to beat the industry average, you know, we're, our, we're targeting a top quartile uh, return profile, you know, internally we're basically saying, listen, we want to, you know, we want kind of 20% plus returns. Um, and, and we're taking a longer approach to it, you know, kind of a five to seven year uh, view on our investments. Um, there's other folks that take, um, shorter term views or, or maybe have, have, have different investors, but you know, the asset class, the private equity asset class has really matured. Um, from a cottage industry to to now a uh, you know a significant portion of of um, uh, of the alternative space and and um, you know for most most of the part private equity firms are trying to grow the equity value by growing the company. Everybody has a different approach to doing it, um, depending on where it is in the life cycle or what their expertise is. Uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question or if you. No, if I you think want it does because specific. 
No, I, I think it does because I, I, you know, and I think you worded it very interesting because not a, a lot of people realize that is the customers are your investors. And, and I think one of the, that's why when I've ever talked to anybody, it's like follow the money and find the motivation. And I think, you know, what you'd said about, you know, partnering up with, because now all of a sudden you're partnering up with companies and people and legacies and cultures. And so there's a lot of people to make happy and a lot of, you know, expectations to be met. So how people, how do you reconcile the two of trying to hit the, the cash on cash or the return that the people need along with someone that has a specific way of running their company and they've hit a, a, like a threshold or, you know, a barrier that they haven't been able to break themselves? Yeah. It, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's no different than say your college football coach. I mean, Nick Saban at Alabama is trying to win a national title every, every year. And he knows if he does so his customers, which are ticket holders will buy tickets, but he actually focuses on 17 year old kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not totally different than us. We need to deliver returns and, and act in a, in, in, in a, in a fashion that, you know, represents our investors, um, you know, appropriately and ethically. And if we deliver, you know, top quartile returns, they'll continue to come back and new investors will knock on our door. Our approach and how we kind of execute against that is we focus on entrepreneurs and family business owners that have a, a view on their legacy and culture and that they're likely the largest employer in their community. And, and, and selling to the you know, Walmart, John Deere of their industry is just off the table. And because their, their social life is intertwined with, with work. I mean, there's, some, there's a lot of gray there. And if they were to sell to a company that closes the facility they've got to move, you know, their kids can't, you know, walk across the parking lot of high school without getting picked on because dad sold the business and closed the factory. So um, we know there are people out there that are, they're looking for us and we're looking for them and, and basically saying, you know, our angle and our, our, the way we do this is partnership with people and, you know, working together to tackle problems and to try to institutionalize a company uh, and grow it. And by growing it, you know, generate those returns for our investors and, you know, part of that investor is our partner, the the management team and, and shareholders that we are investing alongside, you know, every dollar we make, you know, they, they make the same dollar. So, you know, we're, we're really working together so that we all, all do well. Well, I, I think it's an interesting way of putting it too, because I mean, I think a lot of people run into that situation where it's their community, especially up, I know the Midwest as you get into the rural areas yep. where there's big manufacturers that, you know, it's, it's their, it's church, it's home, it's everywhere. The people that they're integrated with their companies is, is, is all over the place. So let's maybe, Mike, as we kind of go through the kind of the life cycle of the, the finding the company, the valuation, and then how that second bite is structured, because it's not an outright sale. It, so let's maybe like start with the, the valuation and how you're going in there and finding and valuing these companies. Cause I think there's this, you know, especially with your, your values, as it sounds like is how do you make sure that the owner gets what they deserve, but also knowing the fact that they've hit a threshold, right? So there's value that they have not been able to harvest themselves for various reasons, or there's a timeline or, you know, inflection point that they've, uh, that they've hit. So how do you, get them what they want and how do you how do you perceive value in these companies and what are you looking for yeah it's a challenge um in part because because we're not a strategic buyer you know we're not a uh, multinational company that has that does what they do and can look at it and say if it was put in our side our model this is the cash it would kick out and so mm -hmm. it to us it's only worth the cash it generates and the cash it's going to generate in the foreseeable future and then risk adjusted and, and as a financial buyer, that's the only way we can look at it. 
is in, in, in terms of that. And so how I would tell an entrepreneur who's thinking about a private investor or a private equity firm, you know, kind of view is they should be looking at EBITDA, uh, which, you know, there, you can Google, there's lots of information out there on what EBITDA is and how to calculate it. You're certainly your accountant can help you through this. But EBITDA less CapEx, it's not true free cash flow, but it, it's, it's in most people in private equity, we'd say, okay, that's, you know, kind of free cash flow of your business. And in my experience, companies trading between kind of four and 12, 15 million of EBITDA, they generally fall somewhere between kind of six and nine times that number. And, you know, what pushes it up or down one way or the other is going to be, is, is risk. And so, you know, an, an example, like I was writing down is, an oil field service company and a dental service, totally different businesses, right? Oil field service, good business, but we all know it's going to cycle. And when it does, it's going to cycle hard, project-based. You punch a hole in the ground. You don't, you don't continuously punch holes in the ground. You punch one hole in the ground, then you move on, you punch another hole in the ground. You've got you know, a big customer, could be 30 to 75% of revenue. Those companies trade on the lower side of that range because of a number of perceived risk factors to continued free cash flow into the future where a dental service business, you know, dental practice might have a big customer might be 1% of revenue or less. And it's predictable. You have to go back every year and get your teeth cleaned. And so it, depending on the risk factors associated with the cash that's coming next year, you trade on one side or the other of that, of that range. There's certainly companies that trade above and below that range. I, I just shared it's by no means, uh, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a complete picture, but it's a eighty twenty rule, I guess. So, and I think, I think you put it in a very clear way. And so when you're looking, let's say, you know, you got these people that family run businesses or it's a, you know, one or single, you know, I'm, I'm assuming they're not VC backed. A lot of the people that you're going for, right. It's a lot of people that have, you know, carried the risk and have done and built this business that's integrated in their family, their community might have a couple of partners. How, you know, how well are they running these to come in where like, and where do you meet in the middle? If, if what I'm saying is it makes sense is in like, they've gotten to a certain point and then there's a lot of value that you can help create. So how are you going in there making sure, because a lot of people I think perceive private equity, they're coming in there with like real estate, real estate investors, they're going to flip it, right? They're going to find all of our weaknesses. They're going to exploit them and then do, you know, do all their tactics. How do you yeah. reconcile that with the legacy and the, all the other, like you said, the, 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 the real human parts of that, and then also getting the value that you need to go forward. Yeah. So, so a couple of thoughts, one for us, you know, when we make an investment, we, we, you know, tell people to call our, our uh, prior partners, you know, Hey, call, call the companies we've partnered with in the past and ask them how we've operated in the good and the bad and ask them how we operated in, in 08, 09. And so that's, that's, that's key. And most people, um, when they're going through this, this process where they're talking to a private equity firm, you know, at a certain point, they should do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kind of around LOI timeframe, if you, you get an LOI and you're, you should be asking, you know, can I talk to two or three guys or even more? Can I talk to everybody? And uh, so, so that's important. If, if you think about what that means, though, it means that if we can't operate like we're building a pirate ship, because we need positive references. So we need the experience to go well for the people we're partnering with, both financially, but as well as, you know, during the time that we're partners. Um, so all that's kind of running in the back of our mind is our future success is dependent on how we treat people. So that, that's part of it. The second piece is economically, we tie ourselves to our partners. So if we come in and buy 60% of a business and, and uh, you know, the founding family owns 40%, 
you know, how, how we're different than say a real estate investor, you know, flipping a house because we're not buying 100% of the house from them and then flipping it and selling it to make a profit. <clears throat> we're partnering with them and saying, you know, together, these are the things that if we do these levers that we pull, the company will be worth more and it's worth more for us and for you. Mm-hmm. So let's, and I think you, that's a great way to put it in. Let's peel that back a little bit on how like getting to the value and getting to the different spectrum of how you come to that 60, 40, or like you said, 51 to 80%, you know, let's, let's literally get into the deal structure because it, you're sure. mainly not going into the outright uh, sale. And so what are the, some of the reasons that someone would go your route or a private equity route and how do they get to the determination of how much money should they get up front or over time? How do you structure it? And then getting to the, that percentages and then what the relationship looks like going forward. Yeah. So there's a lot of kind of personal and tangible strategic reasons that someone should think about a private equity firm. I would say if legacy and culture are important to you, you know, private equity is worth exploring. If your team's important to you and you want to give them a shot at making, you know, kind of real life changing money, private equity is interesting. If long-term financial planning is important to you, and I'd encourage people to talk to their wealth advisor, there's lots of really sophisticated techniques, um, you know, trusts, grats, clats, et cetera. Private equity is interesting. You might ultimately choose a different path, but you should at least, you know, consult with several of your advisors, your accountant, lawyer, and a lawyer who does M&A. And, uh, uh, you know, they would have an M&A department or they would have, you know, several deals that they've done and a wealth manager um, and a wealth manager, again, kind of, that's not your insurance salesman. That's an actual wealth manager, but talking to those people about what's private equity like, and should I do it? Assuming that those things are interesting to you, assuming that you probably have over 3 million of EBITDA, there is a private equity firm out there for you. You just have to find them. And uh, I don't know if that, if that answered your question as far as is private equity, you know, what, what attributes, you know, do you have if, if the asset class is interesting and then certainly happy to talk about, you know, it's also like maybe expanding on the, because they're not, they can't just walk away. Right. And I think maybe yep. giving your perception Correct. of like, I think a lot of people go, Oh, I'm done. Right. And so, yeah. so like by that time, okay, you might have to sell to Walmart and gut your company and move. And so there's like these different levers that you can't have everything. Right. Because, and it depends on how well your company's run. So when you guys come in there, you know, what is the other additional intangibles of like, partnering up with you guys and what you guys should expect from the owner, the management team then and going forward. And then we can kind of dive into like actually how you're structuring the deal of this, of the, the deal. Yeah. I want to make sure I caught that. So what, what do you want me to answer first? So about, I think, you know, maybe just of your exposure of when you're sitting down and talking to, you know, whether they're, they've been clients of yours or not, or what you've seen, Mike, of, the mentality of like the owner's going to have to probably still continue to work, right? You're, you're reliant and like your expectations of them and their team. Sure, 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 sure. So I, I, um, I'd say this, at the heart of disappointment lies expectations. And when, when we're looking to make a partnership with somebody, it, it doesn't have to be that they're day-to-day CEO forever. We, we likely don't have uh, anybody on our staff, uh, nor does the company have somebody who could be the CEO on Monday morning if we close on Friday. Uh, because if if they did, that per- they may not have you know this issue and need to talk to us. You know, our model is partnering with people, um, not running their business for them, and so we don't have the person on staff. So before we end up wiring you know funds and we're you know spending kind of you know sixty to ninety days together, um, going through diligence, 
we're having that discussion about expectations. You know, what are you looking for over the next, you know, five to seven years? Likely you picked us because you're looking to get out. People generally pick us for one of kind of three reasons. They're either a manager team trying to buy out an absentee owner. They don't have the money. They're a uh, person in their 60s or 70s that wants to retire and their kids aren't going to be you know, 45 and ready to run the business anytime soon or, the, or maybe the light switch isn't on. And so they're, you know, what am I going to do? Or they're a 50-year-old business owner that sees something on the horizon they want to pull off uh, and they just can't take on the risk of doing it, you know, buying a competitor or buying into adjacent market, what have you. In any of those three, we're having a discussion about expectations over the next couple of years together. And oftentimes people are saying, you know, I'm picking you because I want to retire while knowing that this company's in a good spot on the other side of my involvement and that I kind of have a big say in who the next management team is or Mm -hmm. the next person in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, So we get involved in that uh, conversation up front. How long do you want to be the day-to-day CEO? That might be six months. That could be three years. That could be four years. Um, and uh, in some instances, it was, I want to be the CEO the whole time. And then on the other side of it, they said, gosh, you know, without having this 800-pound sumo wrestler sleeping on my chest every night, um, I actually really, <laughs> I, I, I really, I really like this. And, and I'm going to keep reloading and go private equity to private equity firm and keep getting bigger. And I'll keep rolling my 20% and, and do well. So we've, you know, we've seen everything and, and, and certainly people can change their minds. We just, we need to plan. And so we spend some time up front talking about what's that plan? What's the next five years look like? When do you want to start to dial it back? And then we have, you know, we build a relationship with the person so that, you know, we're, we're talking regularly if something changes or accelerates or slows down that they just tell us. Well, and where do you see, like, as in, I think bucketing those three helps a lot of clarity, I think in I think, how do you start and meet and get on the same page with the owner's vision? So I think the retired or the person that kind of wants to sunset over a period of time, I think obviously the private equity partners mentality and what they want and what, you know, once they get comfortable with you and your vision, then it's like, okay, I'm going to kind of unwind here. But like, let's say that there's an owner that also has some of these bigger aspirations, you know, do these different structures or these different um, um, visions impact how you structure the deal and how much they roll? And, and oh, how yeah. Would- yeah. It, it, great question. No, they certainly can. So, you know, somebody who's saying, um, gosh, I want to buy two competitors and, and open some new locations. I want to do all these things, but I don't want to take on as much risk. You know, they're sitting down with their wealth manager and they're, and they're talking about, you know, how much is enough to put behind the fence and then how much is risk appetite. Most likely their wealth managers, you know, thrilled because they want to put something behind the fence and not keep it all at risk every day. But, you know, for those people, maybe they keep a little bit more in um, as far as a ownership percentage where the the person who's, you know, 70 and and thinks, gosh, I should have done this 15 years ago. um, You know, they might be looking more at like, you know, grandkids trusts are really what they're rolling. Um, Hey, I'm going to roll 10%. uh, You know, I've worked with my wealth manager and lawyer to set up um, a bunch of grats and clats and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's some philanthropy I'm going to do is really what the equity role is. Um, and, and like legacy stuff. Um, but the, the, I want most of the cash now so that, you know, my wife and I, or my husband and I, whatever it is, you know, we can start to think about retiring and, and really dialing back. And, and then in that situation, the expectation might be, you know, day to day, six months, maybe a little bit longer if it takes us, you know, longer to promote somebody internally or hire somebody. 
you know, but as soon as we get a capable CEO in here, I, I really want to become an active board member. You know, we just, we just try to figure all that out up front. And, and frankly, we just have pretty candid conversations with people. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're pretty agreeable people and, and, and we're nice and friendly and, and, uh, and maybe our peers in some of the bigger cities are, are kind of harder to have that conversation with, but you know, for us, we just, we just ask them. And, and that makes a ton of sense. Right? I mean, it's almost too much sense, right? <laughs> um, so how about, you know, what, what challenges do you see for, for an entrepreneur? Like, let's say one of our listeners is sitting down in front of you and they, they want to buy to their competitors and want to do all these things. They got all these aspirations. How do you guys get on the same page with that vision? So, cause I think, I mean, obviously you're, you're coming in and this can maybe dovetail into the, the, the deal structure, but you know, you guys are buying controlling interest. So, which yep. I think there's this fear. Okay. Now you're, you're literally an employee, you're an investor side by side, but you know, they're an employee. So the changing yep. of the vision and the management team and who you hire, and they've got a lot of people to talk about that stuff with instead of just pulling, you know, pulling the gun and just doing whatever they want. So how does, how do you get to a point and what should the owners be concerned about or what should they do to make sure that the vision is extremely clear and understanding their role in that decision process going forward? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't just happen. I mean, it's very rare that, um, we knock on somebody's door, they knock on our door, and three months later, we're partners. Um, so there's a lot of um, discussion and back and forth. You know, for us, we don't believe that we have all the best ideas. Um, we've got a really big network, and we're, we think we're pretty good decision makers. Um, you know, but really, our expertise is you know, seeing, seeing business models that, that seem to show back up in different industries and the same challenges and opportunities and being familiar with those and then having a really big network and being wise enough to draw on that network and bring in a subject matter expert to solve some problem. And that's kind of, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do. So when someone comes into us and says, Hey, I own a flexible packaging business and I want to acquire, you know, three of my competitors and get into this adjacent market. And here's why we'll listen to that. And, you know, ask them lots of questions about, you know, why they think that would work and what's going on in the market, et cetera. And then, you know, after that meeting, you know, the group of us, we're picking up the phone and we're talking to, you know, people who are experts in packaging and saying, hey, we just met with this, uh, you know, this great, this great family and they were talking about this business and here's some of the stuff they're thinking about doing. So there's no names that are exchanged, but we're saying, you know, hey, we're trying to basically stress test with mm-hmm. people that know what they're doing, you know, is what we heard real? And is this interesting? Um, and then we're, you know, then, then circling back. Uh, so, you know, we, 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 we draw on our network to verify ideas and also to then come back and say, Hey, you know, we, we, we ran the traps on, on what you were saying. Um, everybody's saying that those, you know, two things you want to do that you should be doing, but this third idea kept coming up. What do you think of that? And then we shut up and we listen. Yeah, that's well, because I mean, if you're going to be making decisions together, I mean, that that it's a natural process that and that makes sense, right? And I'm assuming, just like any other partnership, if you get someone that doesn't listen and is used to being, you know, the dictator, it's not going to be overly advantageous to partner up. Yeah, the Hugo Chavez partnership doesn't work. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's say let's let's say you kind of have someone like maybe let's pick a, a random example of whether that someone wants to unwind or maybe somewhere in between there where they want to 
accomplish a couple of things and then unwind. So you, let's kind of, let's talk into the second bite because I think a lot of people talk about it, but they don't necessarily get it. And you explained in the panel that I saw, and you explained it very well on how that works. So I don't know, maybe I'll just kind of tee it up and say, okay, like how does the, how is the deal structured? And then how does yeah. that work? So I wrestled with how to walk through this and I was trying to think about is a house analogy good with a mortgage or talk about a business and you know, the house is easier to talk about you know, think about like you're, you're, you're buying a house with some people and you're going to rent it out. But, you know, I thought it doesn't give it any personality. So I'm going to try my best I, to, to, to give an example. We'll use some numbers. And so I'd encourage your listeners to, you know, rewind if they need to and make notes. And there's well, going to be a little bit of math. If you're willing to give some of the, you know, a couple of those graphs or something like that, I could throw those in the show notes for the listeners. Sure, sure. Yeah, sure. I certainly can. So okay. th- there's going to be a little bit of math and some people grab your pens and pencils, but so we've got a business owner, we'll call her Wendy. And Wendy is a second generation family business owner. And she's deciding what to do with her business. Her company does 30 million in revenue and five of EBITDA. So EBITDA is our EBITDA margins solidly in the mid-teens. And her company makes fire hydrants, right? So let's, we were not going to do widgets and have some random company name. So Wendy's, Wendy's business, fire hydrant business, 5 million of EBITDA. So Wendy's had kids later in her life. She's in her 50s. They're in middle, middle school. They're not going to turn 40 anytime soon to take over. She sees lots of her opportunity on the horizon. She'd like to expand into making other metal valves, maybe acquire one of her, her friend's businesses from you know, different trade shows that she's gotten to know that's at a different point in her life. And she's trying to figure out, what do I do? Uh, so we meet Wendy and we think she's great. Her team's super hardworking. She's honest. There's great people on her team. Um, she sees her employees as her extended family. Uh, so we negotiate a deal with Wendy and we're going to be her partner. And so the deal we strike is we're going to buy 60% of the company. So the price we agree on, and this is for easy math, everyone can follow. So we agree at a five times EBITDA valuation of $25 million. Uh, so EBITDA is five, five times 25. So we, Stone Arch, we coordinate with a, with a lender. We go, to, we go to the bank and we get a three times EBITDA loan. So we get a loan for $15 million. Can I let's can I pick yep. up a pause there because this is good and and I love the I love the context. So explain to the listeners a lender because I, I I think there's 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 all this yeah. there's less exp, there's less exposure for owners because they're normally dealing with the up and down the street bankers who may or may not be friends or enemies. And so yep. like yep. who are you guys dealing? Where does this loan for you know that yeah. chunk of money come from? So there, there's there's generally two places that loan comes from. It comes from either a depository institution. So you know, U.S. Bank, uh, CIBC, uh, uh, First Merchants. I mean, somebody who's a um, a bank that the people would know, uh, Wells Fargo, et cetera. Um, or it's coming from a fund, and there's lots of you know senior capital funds that exist. You know, Mass Capital Funding would be one. Monroe. There's a number of others. Um, there's lots of others. Um, so that's who's generally coming up that we're we're going to and saying. We like this business. Here's why. You know, there's lender packages, et cetera. We work with them, and we get a loan. What, what's really unique about all this is that Wendy no longer personally guarantees that debt. So when when most business owners are looking at debt and 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 it's scary, it's often because they're personally guaranteeing it. So you know, they would look at it like, yeah, I get 15 million bucks, but I have to guarantee it. So why do I want the you know why do I want the risk? Um, with, with us, they don't personally guarantee it anymore. Well, and it's interesting too, because there's an underwriting process right here, right? Yep. And so 
now, you know, what the listeners should really take away is this is why the risk of the cash flow is so important <laughs> because there's a lot of people taking a lot of bets on it. Yeah. So the, the, the lender is, is going to go through a, you know, significant process where they're looking at the same thing we are, you know, kind of risk to cash. Now they're, they don't care as much about growth. They're, they're looking at, I, I'm going to loan you this money at this interest rate and I want it back. Where for us, we're saying we're going to, we're going to put this money in. And if all we do is get it back, that's, that's a nightmare for us. So we need to see it. We need to see that equity grow, you know, two, three times. And the only, you know, real way for that to happen in a meaningful way is, is to grow the business. And I'll walk through kind of why that is a little bit later, but mm-hmm. you know, the underwriting process of the lender, how do they get the money back for us? The underwriting process is, you know, risk adjusted cash flow, but also growth. Okay. So awesome detour. I think it was relevant. Uh, but so let's go back to, so you go back and you're, you're, you're working with the lender. Yeah. So we're, we're working with the lender to get a loan lined up for Wendy's business. They're comfortable at three times EBITDA or $15 million. So if people are looking at the numbers they're writing down in front of them, it's value of the company 25, the loan that we can get 15. And so that Delta is 10, 10 million of equity that needs, needs to come up with. Now we want to buy 60% of the business from Windy. So we need to come up with 6 million of cash from our fund. And so what Windy is going to receive is 15 million from the kind of levered recap of the business and 6 million of equity from us coming in. So she's going to get $21 million and still own 40% of the company. Because of the leverage that's on there, the debt, she's able to take 21 of the 25, which is 84% for the viewers at home of the total value and still keep 40% of the equity. And that's what's unique about our firm. So the difference between that and taking the 4 million off, right? And, and I think this is where I have really understanding what they want and why. So if she wants to continue doing this, so she's rolling $4 million versus going and selling to someone else that'll give her a check for potentially $28 million. Yep, absolutely. So like, yep. why, why would they roll that money in when they could potentially do something else? Yeah, and so this this goes back to their own personal situation. You know, do I do I have a desire to stay around? Do I have a desire to take care of and be part of, you know, deciding the how the future of this you know kind of company moves forward? Strategy, who's going to run it? You know, do I see something on the horizon? Do I want to? Do I actually want to, you know, an involvement in it as a board member or a, or an executive? Still, all those questions are going to influence. You know, if you take the. 25 or 28, as you kind of said with the strategic buyer or the, or, or a little bit, you know, the 25 valuation, but, but, you know, 21 of cash from us. Um, Mm -hmm. Somebody has to make that decision. Uh, We can't make it for them um, because you can't, you can't go back. I mean, once you go through it and you do it, you you can't (laughs) go backwards. No. So now that you've got that structure and they've rolled 4 million bucks, you know, explain how the bank gets paid, how you hit your numbers, how they, could potentially the you know how the second bite actually works because I, I can't remember how you articulated it, Mike, but it was yeah. there's only a couple of levers that you can pull for everybody to hit their goals. Yeah, there's there's three levers that we can pull in in um, as a private equity firm, and and how you pull those levers, there's infinite numbers to pull them. But you can grow the company, you can grow the multiple, and you can pay down debt. That's it. Those are the three things you can do, and if you to to walk through really quickly, so if you know five million of EBITDA to five times multiples twenty five, and you can grow the business to six million of EBITDA, um, 
and sell for five times, you created five million of value. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would we go about growing a business? So people are always going to ask, okay, well, that's the lever, but okay, you, know, you can't just write it on a PowerPoint and say it's true. How do you actually <laughs> grow a business? Um, you know, a lever we might pull is bringing in a sales manager. So not a salesperson, but an actual sales manager or helping assist with the hiring of great salespeople, helping even know the right person to bring in to interview salespeople, to, you know, weed through charlatans from real salespeople. I think most business uh, business people appreciate that there's a lot of really bad salespeople out there that you know market themselves as good salespeople, and it's hard to tell in just you know an interview if they're any good at it or not. Um, there's lots of tests that they can take to actually demonstrate do they have any idea what they're doing. Um, you know, giving people professional training, even knowing the right person to bring in to offer training. Um, you know, possible rebranding effort, marketing dollars spent wisely. Uh, developing new product development processes. You know, we we leverage a lot of resources in our network to help them to develop and execute on plans that we come up with with our partners. Um, you know, much like you use an accountant to help you with your books, we've got an expert in all sorts of functional areas that we can bring in to help us partner develop and execute a plan. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one lever. We can grow the business. The second one is grow the multiple. And that's typically done by removing risk. So that a deeper management team, great systems, so CRM, financial system, you know, KPIs, reporting, uh, a sales team versus an owner operator that's you know being the salesperson, a chief operating officer, you know doing all those things themselves, having a real team, um, helping think about you know growth. Are we going to grow you know towards our existing customer base? Certainly, we don't want to turn down you know money coming to us, but active business development efforts away from industry concentrations, um, removing customer concentrations, right? Hiring salespeople and saying, bang the phones and find us additional customers because. If we can pull customer concentration and industry concentrations down, mm-hmm. the company has less risk and the multiple goes up. So that's the the second one, and and the same math would apply, right? A, a five million of EBITDA, but but with less risk, might trade at six times instead of five times, and you know there's five million of value that just showed up. Mm-hmm. And then the, and then the third one is paying down debt. And so, you know, when the earlier in this call, I talked about um, EBITDA less capex, and that that number is essentially cash flow that can be used to service debt. And, you know, for us, we're looking to generally pay off half the loan in about a five-year period. And so that $15 million loan over five years being, you know, paid down in half, you know, that that creates an extra kind of seven and a half million of 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 equity value. And so um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of value to pulling all three of those levers at the same time. Well, I was just going to say, and then you pull them all at the same time and like magic happens. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, because they're, they're, they're interrelated. I mean, that's the, pe- best, the best part about our job is that if you grow a company, you hire great people, typically all three of these levers get pulled. And if you, if you just walk through the math really quick, so 5 million of EBITDA and a five times value is 25 million bucks. And you know, that $15 million loan is, is how we're getting there. So the, the owner is getting 21 million today and retains 40% of the company. So we pull all three levers. We grow EBITDA to six from five. We increase the multiple from five to six because we add management depth and systems and reporting and new customers. We can basically answer questions when people are diligencing the business. And then we pay off half the loan. So now there's only seven and a half million of debt remaining, not, not, not 15. If we do all three of those things, the enterprise value of the business is no longer you know, 25. Now it's 36. And we only have seven and a half of debt on the books. So we got 28 and a half of equity 
you know, Wendy with her fire hydrant business owns 40% of that. So she gets a second check for 11.4 million bucks. So all in, Wendy takes home $32 million over five years and had a, had a, her, her fingerprints are all over who's the next CEO, where's the direction of the company, all, all those things. Um, and, and financially she, she wins. Which I'd say that's a pretty good return. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is why I you mean, do it, which is why they yeah. should do it. <laughs> yeah. That's, 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 I mean, if it all works, that, that's how it works. Well, and that's why I wanted to, I was excited to have you on the show because how you articulated this, Mike, I mean, like I've interviewed a lot of people and I know a lot of people in our, our space and there's not as many people that clearly say, I mean, it's only, it really boils it down to this. And I, I think it's just interesting because owners need to look at this stuff anyways. And like, it's just, yeah, you know, it's, it's really only these three things. So one of the, the questions are going to come from the context of one of these three areas. You know, that's why you're going to be doing certain things. A um, couple other random questions about this stuff is like, one is how do you, because I think, you know, you had mentioned at the beginning or towards the beginning about executive teams. So how, yeah. you know, how do you integrate? So for example, I, I, I mean, I, honestly, I think about this and I think you and I talked about it where like I, we were ripe for a situation like yours, but instead we sold it outright to a third party and had all the things happen that I wish I wouldn't have. Right. Whereas in like, yeah. but you know, it was like, well, I don't have enough money, you know what I mean? Cause it's my dad's cash flow. And so it was like this whole question and not like, how do you get executives who are crucial to the business into this mix and to give them, you had said to have them create substantial wealth or to, to eventually get teed up to buy it. Yeah. So, so the, the management um, teams uh, that, you know, their, their wealth creation event is, you know, when we're doing a deal, all of those individuals um, generally have the opportunity to put cash in, you know, to, to buy into the business as kind of hard equity. And then secondly, we put in, so we, we generally like LLCs um, versus C-Corps. And so it's, it's not a stock option plan because that's only relevant for a C-Corp, um, but it's a unit appreciation plan. We generally have a unit appreciation plan in place. Uh, for motivating management team members to think about the business in the shower, you know, think you about the business. Can you yeah, think about this like an owner. Okay, so yeah, unit appreciation plan basically means we put a percentage of the business up for grabs um, based on hurdles for people like the CFO, head of sales, chief operating officer, maybe the president. If we hire or promote somebody, all those people have a chance to own a piece of the business, and that ownership vests. So let's just assume there's a, you know, 5% unit appreciation plan. So 5% of the company is up for grabs. And if you think about what that means in, in my example with Wendy, you know, with seven and a half million dollars of debt on the books, you know, 5% of 28 and a half at the end of that deal is possibly up for grabs for mm-hmm. the, for, for the, you know, a couple of those people. So that's, that's real money, you mm-hmm. know, for somebody who might be used to making 180 grand to get a check for a couple hundred thousand as a, yep. And then that cash can be used if we're selling our ownership to another private equity firm to, to roll into the next deal. And so um, for some of these people, there's an opportunity to continue to roll proceeds and realize um, either deal bonuses or, or, you know, kind of stock option plans or unit appreciation plans and continue to roll that, that cash into, um, into equity as, as the company goes through, you know, new partnerships. So when you're an owner listening to this, you know, what would you say to someone that says, well, hell with it. I'm just going to do all this stuff myself. What yeah. would be the difference between them and someone that would be a good candidate? Well, I, I, listen, I, 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 um, you know, I, I trade on goodwill. Um, so I meet with a lot of people and, and 
spend time talking to people about, um, you know, their business and, and, um, you know, what they're looking to do and, and, and a challenge they're facing. And I might point them in the right, in a direction that's not, not our firm because I want to create goodwill so that they, you know, give us as a reference or, 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 or refer us to somebody, you know, there's a lot of business owners that go on hunting and skiing trips and, and hear from another friend, you know, Bobby and Jenny don't want to take over the metal fat business. Um, mm-hmm. So if I can help somebody think through something and, 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 and be happy and treat them fairly, potentially they'll refer you know, that hunting buddy to me and say, Hey, you know, you should meet this guy, Mike O'Neill. He's, he, he shot us straight, helped us out. So I would generally tell somebody, yeah, you should try to do all this stuff on your own if you can. What stops people from doing it is risk. So the, the, imagine you own a business and you have some salespeople, but they just kind of make phone calls and they're more business development. They're not out, you know, meeting with 30% of your revenue every day. And the risk that the owner has in having that salesperson out there is that if that salesperson steps on their tie and really screws up, they just have to go interview for a new job and they can paint any picture and tell any story about why it didn't work out. But the owner has to figure out, okay, I just lost 30% of revenue. My profits just got crushed. And there's all these families that depend on this paycheck. How am I going to make this work? <laughs> right? So that's, that's the risk. Now, yeah. the opportunity for them is if they hire those kind of salespeople, they might triple the size of the business and, and be on the other side of that conversation. You know, gosh, I'm doing great. I have all this cash to, to hire, you know, really smart people to help me out with this because I hire these salespeople that can go, you know, generate sales. So for us, I look at it like not having salespeople is risk. Um, but for them, they'd say having salespeople is risk. Right? You know, it, depending on who, where you sit, some things sound terrifying and other things sound exciting. It just depends on whether that they want that 800 pound sumo sumo wrestler that sleeps on their chest every night. Yeah. Yeah, do you want a yeah. toddler and having the sumo wrestler sitting next to you, or do you want yeah. right? Exactly. How strong is your chest? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, man, I, I really enjoyed it, and I and I love how you kind of walk through all this stuff. It, you know, if the listeners want more information, we'll try and put some of the stuff in the show notes. But if they want to get in touch with you, want more information, what the best? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. So, um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, uh, Michael O'Neill, um, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and, uh, you certainly can, can, can find me, um, my contact information's on there. You can send me an email, um, at my stone arch email, which is M-O-D-L at stonearchcapital.com. You can email me on my Cornell email. Um, you know, you can contact me and just say, I'm thinking about something or I want to bounce an idea off somebody or who, who should I go meet with or speak to? Um, you know, we, uh, you know, we trade in goodwill. And so we're, we're, we're trying to regularly help people out so that, you know, the right opportunity presents itself to us because, uh, you know, we don't need to make a ton of investments. We just need to make the right ones. Mike, I really enjoyed having you on the show, man. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate it. Um, Ryan, thank you so much. And um, best of luck, everybody, as you're, you know, thinking this through, it's, um, you know, it's a big decision. And so it's not to be taken lightly. And just the more information you can get, the better prepared you are. Yeah, I think uh, well said. And I, normally, I, I, I actually forgot is like, what is the one thing if you know if you, if you were to leave the listeners with, and I think you kind of just did, but like, if there's one thing that because we talked about a lot, if you maybe highlight something, or if it's something that you know we didn't talk about, what would be the one thing that you'd you'd kind of leave them with? You know, it's putting together the right group of advisors. Um, you know, you probably have a buddy who's your attorney that maybe you were a fraternity brother with or, or sorority sister with. And it's not to say that they are ever going to lose the business, you know, but you should have a, a an attorney who's very, very well versed in M&A, um, whether they have a um, M&A 
you know, uh, division inside their, their law firm or, you know, and Ryan, that's how we met. We, we met with, we met because there's a, a boutique law firm in town, but they're very, uh, very versed in, in M&A. Um, and so, you know, folks like, like that would be, you know, people to talk to those people. Um, then your accountant, your tax and, and as well as your audit person, your tax person, cause they're going to help you be able to think about some of this stuff and then a wealth manager. And you want people to communicate with one another. The more that you silo everyone off and don't let them talk and know the, the worst information and advice they can give you. And so, you, you, you know, frankly, you'd call a meeting and have your, your attorney there and your accountant there and your wealth manager there and say, I'm thinking about exploring, you know, my alternatives. Uh, tell me more about private equity or tell me about what I should think about doing. And they're going to be able to provide you with advice. And having them disagree in front of you is probably a good thing, right? You know, having them, you know, give the pros and cons of all the, all the different options. Well said. And yeah, which is, you've been there, done that, seen it. And then you you hit on a bunch of good, very, very good points. Well, I really, I really appreciate it, Mike. I I really enjoyed it. Sounds good, Ryan. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you much. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Mike. I really enjoyed how clear he articulated the math behind the second bite of the apple, but also the risks as a business owner. When you're thinking about what is the potential exit options that are available and you are looking at ESOPs or third-party sales or private equity or internal bios, all these different things, there's so many options. And then even if you narrowed it down to a private equity firm, there's still a ton of options for how much money you need down, how much of your company you want to actually sell, where you're at in the spectrum of still wanting to work and pursue your ambitions and why you're actually selling the business. Is it to recapitalize and get additional resources and people? Or is it to unwind because you want to go towards retirement? Because I just think there's so many things to consider that thinking about all these questions and just even being exposed to the different scenarios should hopefully spark some ideas. So I hope those ideas are starting to flow. If you've got any questions, go on to our website, gexpcollaborative.com. We've got a lot of information about these different types of scenarios. Feel free to go back and listen to a bunch of the other episodes that are covered the different exit options or go on to iTunes and give me a rating because I hope you enjoy this show as much as I enjoy doing it. I will see you next week.